You're listening to The Catalyst with Samantha Chris, where we explore the inner workings of embracing the unknown, from ordinary daily habits to extraordinary measures. Get ready, we're about to ignite change and inspire action. Today's guest is media personality, blogger, and author Petrona Joseph. Petrona never had the intention of being a public figure. Her career ambition led her to corporate law, and she ultimately completed her studies as a trilingual linguistics graduate. Upon graduating, she was called upon by one of her first passions, the luxury automobile industry. She has worked with brands such as BMW, Aston Martin, Jaguar, and Range Rover, and she became the first black woman to represent the prestigious Bentley Motors brand in Montreal, an experience that was not only an honor, but fundamental to her growth. But she didn't stop there. Petrona, welcome to the show. Hey, Sam. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad you're here. Anyone who knows us knows that we go a little bit back, but this conversation is probably going to be different than the ones that we've had before. Yes, I'm nervous, but I'm excited. (laughs) (laughs) Really, it's an honor. It's beyond an honor that you selected me to be on your show today, and I thank you. Oh, my pleasure. So we'll probably get right into it because that's kind of how I work. I like just just going for the goods. And so So much of this actually, you know, I'm, I'm going to be hearing this story largely for the first time because a lot of what we're going to be touching on today happened before you and I met. And almost as you were in this 2.0 phase of your life, or, or maybe even 4.5.0, I don't know what stage of your journey you're on. But mm. when we look back at who Patrona Joseph was a few years ago, you led a very glamorous life on the outside. You were in the luxury space. You were at every event. You were shattering the glass ceiling. But on the inside, it was a very different story. Like, What was life like for you at that time? Well, uh, prior to knowing that I needed antidepressants and medication to stabilize my mood, uh, I was chaotic, which was around that time. Um, It was very hard for me to concentrate, and I had this persistent feeling of, um, it's hard to explain, it's like this bottomless emptiness, okay? So in pursuing my career goals and having everything or almost everything, because I believed in law of attraction since I was in university, since I grad, well, since my 2003, I've been watching, you know, law of attraction, the secret. So um, I had everything I wanted, almost everything I wanted, but then every time I got it, it was just, it was like, Oh, okay. You know what I mean? Mm. And I was just running on empty, 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 no connection to the world, no connection to myself. And then, uh, then I started having panic attacks because your, your inner person or your inner child or your inner self can't run on empty for years and not break down. Right. Right. So that's essentially what happened. So what was it like? I mean, you're going to these events, you are walking red carpets, you are being interviewed, and meanwhile, feeling so disconnected from yourself. Like, How do you bridge that gap? 
fall behind closed doors, right? So, I mean, I'm a people person. So, first of all, to receive any accolade or to walk any red carpet in any honor uh, was very humbling for me because I just never expected it, you know? Um, I never expected to, for example, be on television. I never expected to be an, a mar- an influence marketer making tons of money back then. Uh, it just happened. You know what I mean? I was just at the right place at the right time. I'm a businesswoman. So every deal I would go through, it's like, okay, let's maximize this. Right. And, but then, you know, you put on the makeup or you have someone put on your makeup, you have people around you, you know, you could fake it. You could fake the funk. You know, I learned that back in the days. you've got to fake it. So um, I put on a smile. Sometimes it was, you know, faking, but sometimes it was really genuine and fun. But then coming home, it was like I take off the makeup, I take off my mask, and I can be my depressed and lonely self. You know what I mean? As, 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 as sad as it sounds, that's really what it was. Then it would just be me and just me loathing and, you know, trying to understand why there was such a disconnect. You know what I mean? And it was hard to put my finger on it for many, many years. Mm. You were even at the point where leading up to your 30th birthday, you told yourself, that's it. At 30, that's the end of the road for me. And you'd contemplated ending your life. But here you are with us today. And I'm so grateful that you are. What changed for you? I was down a path where it's like, oh my gosh, you know, it's really like either I was going to do it or it was going to happen. Mm. And I remember on one, like, I couldn't sleep. I can never really sleep, you know? And um, so I woke up in the middle of the night and I went to take a glass to um, get some water and the glass shattered. (laughs) So after the glass shattered, I remember I was like, the time is drawing near, right? But then a lot of weird things started happening as well. And then I ended up in a church. I went for help. That was my way of like connecting to God and being like, you need to help me. What's going on? And for me, that was a transition, you know, and then leading up to that point, you're dealing with pastors, you're dealing with healers. And uh, so that's really what took my mind out of it. And mind you, I still wasn't on medication because in the black community specifically, taking medication was seen as something like, you know, you're a failure and it seemed, it's very taboo, you know, it's like, oh, just drink some green tea and like, (laughs) you know, sage your house and pray and read your Bible all day and your mental health will be okay. But that was not the case. It was not the case. So It was an awakening for me to understand, okay, God, so what can I do? Um, So I was enlightened at that point, you know, and prayer does work. You know, I was in the church three times a week because that's the only thing that gave me solace. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because when you're praying and you're you're crying out because of your victim mentality, it, it really, there is something there. I can't say exactly what science or mysticality it is, but um, there was some aspects of me that connected to God. And in connecting to God, it really led me to where I am eight years later, believe it or not. I'm not a fanatic as I used to be going to church three times a week, but I could see where God saved my life. 
really. That's the only reason why I didn't go. And um, I'm still seeking therapy because of it, because that was one of the triggers to my panic attacks. Could you believe that? Was going to church? Nope. Um, so that pact that I made with oh, myself, I, I was going to do it over a bridge. I was going to drive my car over a bridge. And till this day, I'm driving over bridges. I can never do it. I have the worst panic attacks. And uh, in therapy, we found out that my fear or my phobia of driving bridges were founded from my pact of suicide. You know, I've known you for years and I've, I know this fear and I had no idea. Yeah, I was going to drive my car off the Mercier Bridge, girl. <laughs> I'm laughing at it now, but back then, I mean, it really, it, it was a symptom of my mental illness, you know, without even knowing. So let's go back a second because I've heard this before that getting um, professional help or being on any kind of medication is simply not accepted or recognized in the Black community. And it's something you're so open about today in sharing struggles with mental health and openly taking medication and encouraging others to go get help. How did you get from a place where you didn't feel like you can express that and perhaps talk about it with anyone in the black community to now being an advocate for it? Well, because some of my closest friends had the same symptoms. I I share with them my struggle and I, I want to be very vocal with medication because a lot of people should be on medication that are not. So I, I, I'm very vocal about it because I want to encourage people in the black community to seek help, you know, and it is something that's very taboo. I, I remembered one person, she suffered with something even more serious. I think it was borderline schizophrenia and she wanted to become a doctor. And every time she would advance, she would have these breakdowns. And there are mood disorders. When you grow up in dysfunction, right, it affects your whole life, okay? If you grow up in, you know, divorced family, um, any type of trauma as a child, it will affect you all your life until you realize, okay, this is a pattern. This is weird. How can I deal with it? How can I get help? Sometimes medication is what will allow you to bridge the gap from the patterns of behavior, patterns of thought, to being a functional person. I'm very vocal about it because I want not only my community, but other communities seeking out a psychologist, seeking out a hypnotherapist. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So So that's why I'm very vocal about it. Which is really admirable because I imagine there was probably some initial resistance for you to seek that help yourself. Oh, yeah. It took me three years. Hmm. I mean, it took me, I almost died on the bridge, right? Faithfully enough, my, my pack was to drive over a bridge. And when I had my first severe panic attack, it was on the bridge. And I would have panic attacks four times a day, going to work going home for lunch, going back to work after lunch, and going back home after work. Four times a day. And I was told I would have to, you have to pray yourself through the bridge. So I would call my buddies in the church and I'll be like, oh girl, I'm about to cross the bridge. Please pray for me. And they would pray me through. Sometimes it worked, maybe because I was comforted by having someone else on the line with me. 
Mm-hmm. But I was like, I can't always rely on calling someone at eight o'clock in the morning. Hey, could you pray me through a bridge? You know, so the day it happens um, where I couldn't move. So if you're familiar with the Champlain Bridge, when you're going on the Champlain Bridge, uh, especially in the morning when there's lots of traffic, the bridge is cut in two. Okay, so my safety zone was to drive directly on the left and. The left is the is the lane furthest from the water, okay? So you can't really see the water, and I would speed my way through that, okay? So that particular morning, the lane is cut in two, so I, can't, I don't have my safety lane, right? I'm in the middle lane. There's buses coming on the same bridge the opposite way, and I'm frozen, okay? I still remember this day. It was a Monday morning. Um, I can't drive. So uh, the traffic officers are like, hey, move your car. What the heck is wrong with you? This is not a place to stop. And I'm like, I can't move. I was frozen, Samantha. Frozen. I'm thinking, okay, this is like an autobody experience. I'm about to die. And then I drove my way straight to the hospital. And then they're like, no, you need medication. And then, and then I started taking meds. And my family doctor, she was like, I had told you three years ago. You needed medication. So you talk about the symptoms. You talk about the trauma and how it was built up and living in your body all these years. But what is it that you're working through? Childhood trauma, basically, and childhood PTSD. A lot of people don't know that that exists. Mm -hmm. But childhood PTSD is when you go through traumatic things as a child, I mean, my mom passed away when I was three. And then so from three to, let's say, 18, all I saw was dysfunction. I saw dysfunction. I saw abuse. I was abused. Um, Well, to clarify, I was emotionally and physically abused. I had different stepmothers. I lived in different countries. So I never was stable. Imagine this. Imagine this. As an adult, okay? I'm living, I'm living in a beautiful place. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I gotta move. I gotta move. I'm like, (laughs) you know, so I started looking for apartments. And at that time, I had a psychotherapist, I had a um, a psychologist at the time. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking to her. And I'm like, "Uh, I'm moving. She's like, "Uh, but why? I go because I feel like it, you know, I need to move. I want to find somewhere better. She's like, do you think you really want to move or is it because you're conditioned to keep moving all the time? Mm. And I was like, whoa. So it was even embedded in dysfunction, was even embedded in my DNA because as a kid, we never stayed anywhere longer than one year. So we'd be in Grenada, we'd be in one house, we'd move. We'd be in New York, we'd be in one house for six months and we'll move. So like every six months, I, I used to get this itch. And then I had a life coach one time and he was helping me uh, on the dating scene. And he's like, so, you know, where do you want to live in New York or Montreal? And I can never conceptualize where I was supposed to be. I was in between two countries, unstable. And then a light bulb hit. And I was like, but wait a minute, this is how I grew up. Mm. So just, just to tell you, even sometimes the way our family, our environment, our condition, it has 
tremendous repercussions on our adulthood. Now, every time we moved, there was a form of trauma because you're saying goodbye to your friends. And I can never forget my first best friend. Her name was Lindsay. Okay. And don't be freaked out because she looked like you. (laughs) (laughs) I remember you telling me that. I told you that, right? My mm-hmm. first best friend in New York City, her name was Lindsay. I never forget Lindsay because Lindsay was like the cool girl at school. And here I was, the immigrant from Trinidad. And then so Lindsay, I, I was like, oh, my God, I felt like I had arrived, you know, and then we moved. Imagine that. I was so heartbroken that um, I no longer had my best friend, Lindsay. So how, anyway. what other ways have this kind of manifested? I think it's really interesting to talk about changing locations and having that almost subconscious itch to feel the need to stay on the run or on the move, kind of like a rolling stone. How, how else have you been able to see that kind of creep into your life and catch it and be able to say like, mm, mm-mm, not again? Mm-hmm. Indecision, right? Um, I was someone I can never make up my mind, you know, uh, I would say one thing, but then I would change my mind and do something else. I was so unstable in everything. It managed, it, it, it manifested in my finances. So I'd make a lot of money. I would spend a lot. And I'm like, Oh, <laughs> now I can't pay the essential bills, you know, mm-hmm. um, erratic behavior. When I was in university, I remember one day I woke up and I'm like, that's it. I'm moving to Paris. I packed everything. And guess what? <laughs> I went to Paris. No way. <laughs> I did. I did. And then obviously that didn't work out, right? Because it was such an extreme behavior. But not knowing that I needed the medication. So the year I decided, okay, no more Montreal, New York. No more jumping, jumping, jumping was the day, I mean, first of all, to come to that conclusion, I got a lot of help to realize that, right, with the psychologist and the coach. Mm-hmm. And then when I made that decision, I found that I was a lot calmer. And then I was like, okay, there's something here. Childhood PTSD affects every aspect of your life. I was so dysfunctional. I, I didn't know what to do. So one of the things you, you know? said leading up to our conversation, which was a real standout comment for me was when you said that you, you understood that when you were not stuck in your childhood legacy, that set you free. That is powerful. Yes. Yes. What does, what does that mean? What does it mean to recognize? And I mean, not just on an intellectual level, but on an emotional level, what did, what did it mean to you to have that realization that you were not stuck in that childhood legacy of yours. How do you want me to explain that without breaking down and crying? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> really, <laughs> it's such a, it's such a powerful thing. You know, the way you said it, it, it touched every emotion in me because oh, oftentimes we are victims, right? And we stay victims. And even today with the philanthropy work that I do, I see a lot of women stuck in victimhood, right? Now, the day that I realized that I didn't have to be a victim and I was no longer hostage to my catatonic moods as well as to my highs and lows, I became a woman. Mm. I became a full-fledged woman. 
And to become a woman suffering from any form of mental illness, suffering from any form of depression, I mean, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's hard to get to that. And then I said to myself, wow, I can stand on my own two feet. I'm emotionally stable. I am thriving. And then eventually I sat down on myself and I'm like, you know what? I am so proud of you, Virginia. It's reconnecting to yourself. Childhood PTSD makes you disconnect from who you really are as an individual. Okay. Mm -hmm. But once you get that help and I, and I emphasize help because I sought for years, many psychologists throughout my life because I wanted to be better. I knew something was wrong. Right now, leading up to that point, not a lot of people are so zealous for the help. You know what I mean? A lot of people are walking around They're They're stuck. They're stuck. You know, some people still think about things that like traumatic things that happened to them as kids. Oh my God, listen, some family members of mine, I can't, I can't necessarily bear on them too long because five minutes we're sitting down and it's things that happened 50 years ago. They're still stuck. They're still stuck in that trauma. And what happens is that that stays in your body and it stays in your mind and it's recycled and nothing good can happen to you. Like you said earlier, right? It, it, it chains you to your past. When you hold on to that stuff, you're trapped with it. You're stuck with it. Mm-hmm. And you can't thrive with it. You cannot. No, it's too heavy. You could, yeah. You could excel in certain areas of your life, but to excel and to thrive is two different things. You know what I mean? How did you learn or train yourself to believe that change was possible through this journey of yours? I mean, I, I know that you got help. I know that you probably got a lot of tools to guide you through the tougher moments, but was there a time either that you could pinpoint or just generally speaking that you realized I'm actually in control here and I can change my situation. I can rewrite my story. Well, it came to me in meditation. You know, I am a believer in Ho'oponopono. So Ho'oponopono is a meditation what that says that anything you manifest, good or bad, you're responsible. So if something bad happens, uh, it's not the outside that caused it, it's in you. So you'd have to, you know, acknowledge it and release it. And I remember one night I was in deep meditation and um, it occurred to me, start writing your affirmations every day. I was like, what? Because <laughs> I was never <laughs> like an affirmation person or and then it led me to start rewiring your brain. And I kid you not, I kid you not, every day at 6 a.m., I would go to the kitchen, make my coffee, and I would write out my affirmation. It would take me 10 minutes. And two years later, because you, you know every time you come to my house, I still have to show you that paper. I'm like, Samantha, <laughs> you don't take what I'm talking about. I do, I you know do. <laughs> I got to stop pestering you with that. But listen, a lot of those things that I showed you on that paper manifest. And it was all just a matter of me rewiring my mind. And that's when I knew I was in control. I'm still not 100% of where I would like to be. But I do believe that affirmations and self-belief, self-talking, um, reprogramming your brain to see positive in every situation, it really has an impact on people that suffer with PTSD or childhood PTSD. 
you have to rewire yourself. Also, you, once you feel, and you see the key here is knowing that medication helps that void. Because sometimes that void that you feel, it's, it's a chemical imbalance mm. in the brain, okay? The lack of serotonin can cause you to feel like you're a half human. So you go out there and all you do is chase. You ever sat down with someone and they have so much? Or, you know, some people, they're just never happy, you know? Mm. And so because their, their, their core is not filled. Back to, your, back to what you were just asking me, um, understanding that, you know, I was in control and I took control and I saw the fruits of my labor, it became so addictive. And I thank God that I sowed those seeds and just writing my affirmations, looking at myself in the mirror and being like, you got this, you could do this, I believe in you. It filled that hole. So I'm no longer in a state of wanting. And you'd be surprised. When you walk around in the universe and your energy is no longer in a state of wanting, look at me, I'm important, pay attention to me, the more you attract, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Once you, you, I don't know if I said that right, the less you walk around the world wanting and the more you walk around the world with that hold filled is the more things that come to you. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So, yeah. So it's, it's a work from inside out. It's a work from inside out, Sam. I'm a brand new person from inside out. You could ask anyone who knew me from, I would say, from 20 on onwards. I was a, wow. I was a hot mess. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, so if we think about 20-year-old Petrona and really the hardships that you just, that you endured, the experiences that you lived, the things that we're not comfortable. I mean, do you at this stage look back and think that there was a silver lining or have you on some level been able to give purpose to that pain in which you recognized as being an important part of your story? Well, I think that it helps me sympathize a lot more with people. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a lot more compassionate with people. Um, when I can recognize my 20-year-old self and someone that's younger than me, I take them under my wings. And I, I, it's a gift. I find that it's a gift from God to recognize that. You know what I mean? And so that's my silver lining. And I think that God allowed it so that I could be a compassionate person. Because I don't think that if I went through those hardships, I would have been a very kind person today. I was angry. I was walking around angry, you know? Yeah. Um, but that's my silver lining. So um, I, I just, if I could save the world, if I can, you know, feed all the animals that I see, all the stray animals and just embrace everyone, I would, you know, it gave me, it gave me a compassionate heart. And I think that you need that in the, some of the work that I do at philanthropy and, you know, charities, you, you need to, you need to be able to look at a woman and be like, she's not only in need, this is a broken person. What can I do to help her? You know what I mean? Mm, I love that. Mm. I love that. So what's next for mm. you? I mean, as a woman who's now in this place of a different place of not wanting and just being open to possibilities, to opportunities, to experiences, what can we expect in this next chapter of yours? Oh, hey, I'm trying to get pregnant and have me a couple babies. <laughs> <laughs> 
Let's be plain and clear, honey. Oh my goodness. All right. So next chapter, motherhood. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes, it's a chapter I neglected because I've been so busy. I've never really been able to emphasize or focus on that. But um, from my lips to God's ears, you know? Oh, yeah, honey. Oh, that totally. You know what? And I, even though I know you and I, that is an answer I probably could have expected, I wasn't expecting it in this moment. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, ask me this a couple years back. It would have been like, I want to do this. I want to write a book. I want to, you know, but like... You know, the slowdown with coronavirus has made a lot of us realize that all we have is our connections. All we have is our families. All we have are people we love. And I really want to see a couple mini me's, you know, a couple <laughs> mini me's that I can have tons of fun with. You know? Oh, I love that. I love that so much. And my husband, too. I mean, a couple of, a bit of him, you know, and a couple <laughs> of <me>. But mostly <laughs> you. Or yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so where can listeners stay up to date and on your journey in seeing what's next for you and cheering you on every step of the way? So the blessed place would be on Instagram. That Perfect. is at I am Patrona Joseph on Instagram. Awesome. Patrona, thank you so much for being on the show. I always love talking to you and I so appreciate you willing to share parts of yourself that I didn't even know. Well, thank you for having me. Friends, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Catalyst with Samantha Chris. If you like what you heard, be sure to leave us a review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I hope you're feeling a little more equipped to lean into the unknown and take inspired action.